Hello and welcome to episode number 52 of the Agro-Innovations podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. This has been prepared for release onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, May 18th, 2009. Let me start by reminding you that this and all episodes of the Agro-Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Go to creativecommons.com to learn more about that. This is the second part of my interview with Frank Van Shelbrook of the LISA Network. And before I get into that, uh, I did want to say that this will be the first time that I'm going to post a thread on the Global Swadeshi Network so that we can have a little forum to discuss more about the themes and issues covered in this specific episode of the podcast. I will link to that uh, on our webpage at agroinnovations.com slash podcast in the show notes for this episode. And if you are a member of the Global Swadeshi Network and listen to the podcast, then please go over there and, you know, write up your comments, get involved. If you're a listener and not a member of the network, then go check it out and get engaged with the community over there and help us to build some relationships and some synergies with that uh, great forum. So without any further ado, let me get back to our interview with Frank Van Shelbrook of the LISA Network. So I have also spent a fair share of my time working with smallholder farming farmers in the developing world. And it is true what you say, that there are some innovative farmers out there who want to work with uh, outside organizations so that they can more effectively innovate and experiment but it also surprised me how actually little interest there are there is in sustainable agriculture uh, in the vast majority of their colleagues. Um, most most small, I mean, it's actually an effort to go out there and find these innovative uh, small scale farmers. Obviously, every community has them, but you know, in a community of 500, maybe there's five to ten of them. So, what about the other 490? Um, a lot of those people are not all that interested and they're just more interested in business as usual or the status quo. So that makes that, that further compromises the position of the experimental and innovative farmer in that they don't have the support network that they need from the larger institutions, whether it be their local municipality or the World Bank or whatever. Uh, but even within their own community, oftentimes they don't have the support they need. So... How much responsibility lies with the third world farmers to take the lead? And what is the prospect of this truly happening? Well, um, uh, first of all, I think uh, it would be wonderful if uh, third world farmers uh, would organize and, uh, and get their voice out. Um, uh, I think the key here is like... Uh, what far? What I mean, the farmers are obviously, as you also indicated, it's a very uh, diverse group. Maybe, uh, maybe I'd like to give an example of. Uh, 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 I was n uh, not so long ago actually for an FAO program in uh, Tunisia in the Oasis, uh, where there's a wonderful system with palm trees that are 100 years old and fruit trees of 10 years old, and then on the ground uh, salads and uh, the, the annual crops. And for some reason, uh, farmers they were they were cutting down all the trees and putting only the annual crops and. 
and then we discussed this with the Department of Agriculture and they said oh we should we should teach the farmers the old system because they are forgetting it and then uh, after a couple of days um, uh, walking around and we asked some farmers like why are actually cutting down these trees and then it's exactly this uh, land uh, access thing because what was actually the situation is that uh, the the, the, the official landowners who had been there uh, traditionally, they had all gone to school and then they, uh, they left as doctors uh, and, uh, and, uh, and officials uh, to the capital and the people who were actually working on the land, that were, um, that were immigrants and they had no rights to the land. They, they, were, um, they were just they were put on the land to keep out uh, 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 others and after a year or two, they would they would they would be moved to another plot, and therefore, I mean, th these farmers on the outside they looked unsustainable farmers, exactly like you describe it, the people who 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 uh, go for the quick benefit. But obviously, they they do that because they had no access, because they didn't have the rights to those lands for uh, for for a substantial period. So, I think the key to this all lies in the. Uh, yeah, in the in the in the the, the, the policy environment, in the uh, what what kind of uh, incentives uh, do farmers get? And um, to my experience, in places like Bhutan, uh, where I, where I've lived for uh, almost ten years, uh, there were people who had been uh, uh, for generations, and they had they owned their own land, and uh, and they were farming. Sustainably, sustainably. I mean, they were really maintaining the land. They were putting uh, organic manure and uh, uh, maybe a little bit of uh, fertilizer. But that that was definitely a sustainable system. So I'm not so uh, convinced that uh, uh, that I, I'm pretty sure actually that if you uh, if if given the right framework, given the right uh, incentives. Uh, farmers will will work sustainably, obviously, because then they want their their children to uh, to enjoy the same environment. Um, yeah, that was that was one part of the answer. Yeah, and and I think it's farmers that uh, that can point out these uh, these issues best. But I must say it it uh, requires lots of probing because. When you come in a village and you've been there only for half a day or one day, and you ask, "Okay, what you need?" Obviously, farmers will say, "Oh, I need some money. I need some inputs." And uh, but if you're there and you ask again and again and again, "What do you What do you need?" It might as well be, for example, the uh, I, we need the right to uh, plant trees and to sell the timber. Very often, there's no such right. So why would you plant a tree? If you don't plant a tree. Then uh, the rain is going to wash away your land. Yes, because uh, it doesn't give any much. Uh, it doesn't give very much benefit to plant a tree. So uh, it's yeah. Uh, I'm convinced that uh, given the right uh, circumstances, farmers can really uh, care of take care of the land. And I would also answer my question in part by saying that uh, there's a book called Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. And yeah. that book deals with the technology adoption life cycle. Now his focus, it's a marketing book, and his focus is on uh, high technology. 
But the principles in the book apply, and especially the most compelling thing about the book is his description of different demographics in the population. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he breaks it down in the bell curve, and he says you have the technologists and the visionaries, and those are the folks who are going to adopt a practice or technology, and they're basically the experimental farmers that uh, we've been talking about throughout this interview. Um, yes. And then now the vast majority are either uh, pragmatists or uh, conservatives or skeptics, and they need a something a little bit more concrete to convince them. They don't like to experiment for the sake of experimenting. They're not the visionary type of folks who really have this broad uh, dream for what they want their farm to look like. So they need, it's, it's kind of like both groups need one another. And if, if we could actually formulate projects and policies that recognize this and support these people on this front end of this bell curve, the technologists and the, and the visionaries, so that then they can become uh, the medium of change in their community for the more pragmatic type people, uh, you know, I mean, I think that we could, we could recognize that these natural differences exist in any population and uh, have more productive projects. For, towards yeah. sustainab sustainability. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, uh, whenever you walk into a village, there's <coughs> sorry, there's uh, um, there's always uh, uh, those one-two farmers who uh, immediately come to you and uh, and uh, and uh, try to tease uh, every bit of information out of you. Uh, obviously, the the vast majority of farmers they are too busy with uh, raising children, uh, uh, making ends meet. And, uh, and it's very difficult for them to, to be so on top of uh, that kind of thing. So I, I completely agree with you. There are different types of uh, farmers and they, uh, they have very different uh, information needs and very different needs of, uh, 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 yeah, of changing their farm. Yeah. And so for those people who are out there working with innovative farmers, if you're an innovative farmer yourself, I know it's frustrating, but... Um, just give you a word of support from my part and I'm sure from your part as well you're doing the right thing and uh, keep at it uh, you know you're, you're definitely not alone out there absolutely and, th and that is also a, a, a big role we see as uh, of our magazine because people who were in innovative uh, it, we, we often find people who uh, who were living in uh, our magazine and one of the who has tried to set up a, a farmer's organization uh, around uh, marketing milk and then it's always very difficult that somebody runs away with the money and the people quarrel because uh, because of uh, because they have a quarrel between families already half a century or a full century even. that all happens but in the end um, uh, when you have success in that kind of uh, circumstances uh, it's 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 great fun, and if you can then if you then can can write something about it and it gets published in in, in a real magazine, we always find that people that it that is very encouraging. Uh, then you also get uh, reactions from uh, other parts of the world. Nowadays, it's very easy with email because there's really even quite a lot of uh, people in Africa or in Asia uh, who have access to email, and. Um, uh, uh, yeah, it, it it builds a kind of uh, uh, um, yeah a strange kind of uh, joint project uh, all over the world of these innovating people. 
And based on our conversation, and it seems based on your experience and based on my experience as well, perhaps one of the most important policy frameworks or policy objectives that can be put out there is to find reasonable and effective ways to support these innovative farmers in the work that they do and to give them the greatest possible exposure in their communities so that they can do what they do best, which is innovate and experiment and help their community find the path forward towards sustainability. Yes, absolutely. And and uh, uh, in, in that process, uh, the, uh, uh, also take into account all the local difficulties, uh, like there's a, a local government who, wants, who has a different uh, objective or uh, there's a city nearby and the land gets... Uh, being bought away by people who speculate. I mean, there's so many uh, 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 forces in this world in which small farmers have to uh, keep up their farming, and uh, um, yeah, it's 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 hard work. It's it's tough. Yeah, but very interesting. Well, I've believed for a long time that uh, the the small scale farmer is really the key to unlocking this, uh, you know, to unlocking this puzzle. And uh, I'm glad that we had the opportunity to talk about that. Now, let me ask you one final question. Uh, we know that these are difficult and challenging times. Uh, we don't have to watch the television for more than 10 minutes to figure that out. Um, so what are the most important things people can do to improve their food security in their community, no matter where they live and no matter who they are and you know, no matter what they're doing? Yeah, uh, um, that's uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, something to think about. Of course, uh, I could say, uh, okay, go to your uh, supermarket and uh, and buy uh, organic food. But actually, I even if that's a nice thing to do, I, I would I would want to take it a step further. Maybe um, uh, agriculture. Maybe you know at the moment we take food and agriculture uh, for granted, but the, uh, there's good reason to to uh, to have much more uh, civil involvement, not only of farmers but also of uh, of uh, politicians and also of uh, of uh, civil groups. Uh, just one figure that uh, comes to my mind is that uh, at this moment I think uh, about three times the size of India. Of agriculture land in the world has degraded. That's an, well three times the size of India. You, it's an unbelievably big, uh, big area. Not exactly as big as the United States, but almost as much. That's an enormous amount of land. Now, uh, the, uh, so the 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 land on which we are uh, producing our food and we are we are uh, growing uh, the human population is is, is getting going down now what can we what can we do about it I think um, um, what we can do about it is talk a lot about agriculture uh, uh, have opinions about it uh, look at what's uh, what's happening uh, uh, agriculture it's it's important for for all of us it's it's uh, it's 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 not only there for food but it's also there for 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 the environment, for uh, for all the animals that live in this world, for for forests, for uh, um, for water, for it's 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 
it's definitely uh, the thing that we uh, that 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 we live in, and so uh, I would think uh, we should we should all engage in the debate about it, and uh, we should all have uh, our opinions about it, and uh, and. Uh, and and kind of know what kind of food we eat and uh, and what we do by buying certain types of food. I I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, it should it, it should be actually a happy uh, a, a happy agenda. After all, uh, uh, well, definitely here in Europe, if you go through uh, some agricultural land just around the corner where I live, it's it's a beautiful area with forest and in between also agricultural land. I mean. Uh, there's 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 much more in agriculture than uh, than just uh, the 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 bread and the chicken that we buy in the supermarket. So uh, I would think we should all uh, we should all have uh, develop our opinions about it and and get ourselves hurt. Yeah, and I would also encourage people to cook. You know, uh, you know, find some good local produce and make yourself a meal. Um, it seems like such a simple thing to do, but it, it seems in these times it's a bit revolutionary in a way. Yes, that is a that's a small revolution. The suggestion you you just do. I was also thinking. Uh, I mean, everybody just everybody uh, should have one uh, one uh, uh, one uh, pot of something and and grow something. Just grow some herbs or. Uh, uh, or some strawberries on the balcony, uh, wherever you are. I mean, e even even that is a great fun. That's on one hand you can see how difficult it is, and the other on the other hand you can see what a miracle it is that that's all growing uh, with the sunlight and a bit of water. It's uh, yeah, I I enjoy that a lot myself in uh, in the in the few square meters that I have to my disposal. Well, Frank Van Schelbrook of the Center for Information on Low External Input and Sustainable Agriculture, or LISA. Uh, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. And yes. we've talked about so many things that are so crucial to sustainable agriculture, not just in the third world, but I think uh, around the globe. Um, we will link to your website on the show notes for this podcast, which can be found yes. at com slash podcast. So for those people who like what they heard and want to learn more or want to get their hands on the magazine, you can click through our website to get to your website. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you. That concludes my interview with Frank Van Schelbrook of the LISA Network. And, of course, we will, as I said, link to the LISA Network through our webpage, which you can find at agroinnovations.com slash podcast. Now, that was the second part of the interview, and the interview did not go a full hour, so I've got a little bit of time here, and I want to share a few things with the listeners uh, related to food and the Food Network. I am currently reading uh, Michael Pollan's The Omnivore's Dilemma, which I probably should have read quite a long time ago, but I just never got around to it, and I'm reading it now. Many of the listeners have probably read it, and if not, it's a, it's a great book, and I would definitely encourage you to get your hands on a copy and, and read it. But one of the things I've been looking at is some of the calculations on the amount of energy invested in food. And one of the things that Michael Pollan focuses on is corn. Uh, if you read the book, you know how much he talks about corn and 
how much we actually end up consuming corn in our diets. Um, and he talks about the fast food processed meal that he had eaten as part of the four meals that he's eating in the writing of the Omnivore's Dilemma. And this meal was a meal that he had eaten with his wife and his son at McDonald's. And he calculates that there was 4,510 calories in that meal between those three people. And he said there was 10 times as much uh, energy invested to grow and process that meal. So I've been trying to do some reverse engineering on some of the numbers that I have to try to find out what the percentage of that energy invested was invested to grow the meal and what percentage of that was actually invested to process the meal. Now, this has been a bit of a vexing topic because I have not been able to adequately do that based on some of the numbers in Pollen's book and some of the other numbers that are out there. Now, that said, I have not uh, gone too deeply into this, so it's probably possible to do it. Uh, I just kind of tried to do some back-of-the-envelope calculations and try to figure it out. But let me talk you some through some of these calculations, and you can draw your own conclusions. So according to Michael Pollan, it takes 50 gallons per acre to produce 180 bushels of corn. So you get 180 bushels per acre, and it takes 50 gallons of gasoline to do that, or 50 gallons of oil to do that. Now, when we talk about food, we always say calories, but actually what we're talking about is kilocalories, and naturally there's 1,000 kilocalories per um, there's 1,000 calories per kilocalorie. Now, 34,712 kilocalories are in a gallon of oil. So that means if we're producing 880 bushels of corn per acre at 50 gallons of oil per acre, we are investing 1,735,595 kilocalories per acre of corn that we are producing. So it's about 1,800,000 uh, kilocalories per, per acre. Now here's where it got a little bit tricky for me to tear this apart because I have not been able to find some accurate numbers on actually how many kilocalories there are in 180 bushels of corn because 180 bushels is what we actually produce by investing that amount of fossil fuels. Now, I should also say that, uh, you know, traditional agriculture has produced, I believe it's about 20 to 40 bushels of corn per acre, you know, without all the fossil fuel inputs. So you can see that the, uh, the increase using the hybridized corn and all the pesticides and the fertilizers is quite substantial. Now, some studies indicate there is a study by uh, David Pimentel and Mario Giampietro from the year 1994 that indicates that the energy ratio to produce, agri uh, to produce uh, food under this industrial agricultural, uh, agricultural model is actually one to one. So for every kilocalorie of fossil fuel energy that we invest, we get one kilocalorie of food energy. And this is a study from 1994. Now, this does not include the energy expenses of packaging, delivery to retail outlets, refrigeration, or household cooking. 
and there's no mention whatsoever of food processing. So, and and this is, um, I'm getting this from a secondhand source from an, from an article written by Dale Allen Pfeiffer, who has written somewhat extensively about this topic as well. So now that's a one-to-one ratio, and I believe that is the same ratio that Michael Pollan refers to in his book, a one-to-one ratio. Now, when I actually did a calculation trying to figure out how many kilocalories there are in a pound of corn, that was a little bit vexing. I found that there are 3.6 kilocalories per gram of corn, and there are about 453 grams per uh, pound. So that means there are 1,632 kilocalories per pound of corn. Now, if you extrapolate that to 180 bushels per acre, uh, let's keep in mind that there are 56 pounds of kernels, of corn kernels, per bushel of corn. So at 180 bushels per acre, that's about 10,000 pounds of corn per acre. Okay, so we've got 10,000 pounds of corn per acre. And we've got 1,632 kilocalories per pound of corn. So that's 16 million, about 16 million 500 uh, kilocalories per acre of corn. Now that is much higher than the one-to-one ratio that David P. Mantel and also Michael Pollan cite in their writings. So this is a bit vexing for me, and I can't figure out what the discrepancy is. It could be uh, the amount of calories I'm calculating per gram of corn, which is 3.6 kilocalories per gram of corn, Uh, but uh, I'm not quite sure. So just to reiterate that, the kilocalories per acre of invested oil is 1,800,000, and the kilocalories of corn is 16 million. So... Obviously, there's either something that's wrong with my calculations. I have not looked at the David Pimentel study. Or, uh, you know, maybe that one-to-one ratio is incorrect. So there was another study, a refined study, that Gianpietro and Pimentel did in that same year, 1994. And they found that 10 kilocalories of non-muscle energy are required to produce one kilocalorie of food delivered to the consumer in the U.S. food system. This includes packaging and all delivery expenses, but excludes household cooking. So the U.S. food system consumes 10 times more energy than it produces in food energy. And this is a a statistic that we often hear, that the U.S. produces, the, the food system requires 10 kilocalories of basically fossil fuel energy to every one kilocalorie of food energy. Now, those back-of-the-envelope calculations that I did, uh, you know, and that's the, the corn just coming off the farm would suggest otherwise, but, you know, David P. Mantel probably looked into this in a lot more detail than I am. So, what I really think is interesting here is to look at this food processing aspect of it. And this may be something that uh, I know... Michael Pollan has written a new book called In Defense of Food, and Eater's Manifesto, which I have not had a chance to take a look at yet, but he may talk about this in more detail. He does talk about it somewhat in his book, The Omnivore's Dilemma. So he goes to visit the Center for Crop Utilization Research at Iowa State University. 
and he talks to a fellow named Larry Johnson, who was the center's director. And this is the closest he was able to get to a corn wet milling process, which is really how uh, most of the corn that we're eating in our diets is uh, processed corn in one way or another. And the processing is that it goes through this wet milling process. So let me read to you an excerpt from uh, Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma. And this is on page 87 for those of you who uh, would like to go back and, and double check this. To hear Johnson describe it, the wet milling process is essentially an industrial version of digestion. A food is broken down through a series of steps that includes the application of physical pressure, acids, and enzymes. The order of the steps is different in industrial digestion, but the acids come before the mechanical chewing, for instance, but the results are much the same. A complex food is reduced to simple molecules, mostly sugars. So this is quoting Larry Johnson. First, we separate the corn into its botanical parts, embryo, endosperm, fiber, and then into its chemical parts, Johnson explained as we began our tour of the plant. When a shipment of corn arrives at the mill, it is steeped for 36 hours in a bath of water containing a small amount of sulfur dioxide. The acid bath swells the kernels and frees the starch from the proteins that surround it. After the soak, the swollen kernels are ground in a mill. By now, the germ is rubbery and it pops right off, Johnson explained. We take the slurry to a hydroclone, basically a centrifuge for liquids, where the germ floats off. After it's dried, we squeeze it for corn oil. Corn oil can be used as cooking or salad oil or hydrogenated for use in margarine and other processed foods. Now, we all are familiar with the partially hydrogenated corn oil, which is on so many of the labels of the food that we eat today. So Michael Pollan continues, Atoms of hydrogen are forced into the fat molecules to make them solid at room temperature. Though this was originally designed as a healthy substitute for animal fats, Medical researchers now think that these trans fats are actually worse for our arteries than butter. Once the germ has been removed and the kernels crushed, what's left is a white mush of protein and starch called mill starch. To draw off as much of the protein as possible, the mill starch undergoes a progressively finer series of grindings and filterings and centrifuges. The extracted protein, called gluten, is used as an animal feed. At each step, more fresh water is added. It takes about five gallons to process a bushel of corn and prodigious amounts of energy. Wet milling is an energy-intensive way to make food. For every calorie of processed food it produces, another 10 calories of fossil fuel energy are burned. So, the simple conclusion here, and he does not, Michael Pollan does not provide more in-depth uh, data on that, and as far as I can tell, there is no citation on that uh, comment that every uh, one calorie of processed food that is produced through this wet milling of corn requires 10 calories of fossil fuel energy. But that probably sounds about right. And regardless of the other debates around how much we're actually investing to pr fossil fuel energy, we are investing to pr produce corn. It is very clear that there is a lot more energy invested in, let's say, a box of cornflakes than there would be in a corn of a, a cob of sweet corn, even if uh, that both both of those feedstocks 
or the original corn coming from that was, you know, produced using pretty intensive fossil fuel industrial agriculture. And so this leads me to the conclusion, a, a conclusion very similar to what Michael Pollan, I believe, concludes in his book, In Defense of Food, from interviews that I've heard with him, is that we need to stay away from processed foods, not only because they are not very healthy for us, which is, a, which is an important reason in and of itself, but also if you are concerned about energy depletion, then you can automatically reduce the amount of energy you are consuming in your food by limiting, or if you can, eliminating totally the amount of processed food that you're consuming in your diet. Now, one of the things Michael Pollan says is, if it has more than five ingredients, then don't buy it. Now, he's come out and said, well, you know, the food industry has sort of subverted that message, and they're trying to produce things that only have five ingredients, and he says, if, if the food is being advertised, then don't buy it. Um, regardless of how you approach this, and there are many ways to approach this, I think. I think the first way is to, as Frank Van Shelbrook said at the end of the interview with him, is to talk about food and to think about food and to you know listen to podcasts like this and other related uh, other podcasts in this area. But... However, regardless of how you approach this, it seems pretty clear to me that there are two ways that this country can dramatically reduce the amount of ambient energy in its food system. And one is by eliminating processed food from your diet, and two, by eliminating feedlot beef from your diet. Feedlot beef is one of the most energy-inefficient ways to produce food that there is, partly because the, the corn that the animals are fed, and Michael Pollan also talks about this in detail in his book, which I won't get into, but you can read the book for yourself and find out. The corn is fed to the cattle, and one, cattle are not designed to consume corn, and two, uh, cattle are fairly inefficient uh, conversion devices or, or biological converters of corn energy into food energy. Now, of course, when, and Michael Pollan talks about this as well, when cows eat grass, which humans can eat, that is actually a fairly efficient pathway to converting sunlight energy into food energy for us. But feeding them corn is not. So if you can do three things to reduce the amount of energy that you are consuming, and if you are concerned about depleting energy reserves the world over, and you should be, you can do these three things. You can eliminate or reduce drastically the amount of processed food you're eating in your diet. You can eliminate the amount of feedlot beef in your diet, more so than any other uh, form of meat. Feedlot beef is the most energy inefficient food that we have out there. And also, you can eliminate deep sea fishing food from your diet. So those huge industrial fish uh, boats that go out there, those commercial fishing fleets that go out there, they're a pretty inefficient way to get food calories as well, and they are pretty fossil fuel intensive. So study your options. Try to figure out which types of seafood are more sustainably and efficiently produced and, you know, consume those. Take a look at uh, the podcast with Doug Burdett, which is in the Agro Innovations podcast archives, 
and have a listen there. And you will uh, learn a little bit about what fish can be produced under a farm type system. And fish are actually these in under these type of farming conditions, fish are actually pretty efficient converters of grain to protein. And Doug Burdett talks about this more, much more so than cattle, uh, maybe a little bit less so than um, chickens. But nevertheless, uh, it's certainly much more efficient than these commercial deep sea fishing fleets that are going out there and really severely depleting our fisheries. So that is the end of that rant. And I will sign off here now because I am running out of time here and I've, I've gone over than the time that I usually like to go. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.